welcome back to Tapping Into Crypto, the podcast for all things cryptocurrency. Whether you're a beginner, a Bitcoin veteran, or just crypto curious, I am your host, Alicia Chapman. And today we are joined by someone who I personally have learned a lot from, and that is Jamie Coots, who is a pioneering financial analyst and speaker from Bloomberg. Jamie, welcome to the show. Hi, Alicia. Thanks for having me. It's so good to have you here. Now, Jamie, you've had an amazing career. I think when I was reading through and kind of seeing the journey that you have been on, it's been a pretty incredible adventure. So you started out at Credit Suisse, then you went 19 years abroad. You're in London and Singapore working for BCG, Tudor Capital, all these names that we know in the industry and more traditional financial markets. And then in 2014, moved over to Bloomberg, where you started off as the senior equity market specialist covering some stuff in Asia. And now you are in the position you are now in the world of crypto and helping them to really, really uncover and analyze everything that they need to there. So it's been quite a journey. Yeah, it has. I wouldn't say it was all planned, but um, (laughs) I'm, I'm very grateful for the journey that I've had so far. And so let's dive into your current role and where you are now for those that that maybe haven't seen an article from you. Can you let us know a little bit about your day today? Well, yeah. So I'm the crypto market analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. It might be worthwhile just sharing a little bit of information about Bloomberg. For those of you who don't know, I'm sure most people have sort of seen Bloomberg news on, you know, Foxtel or cable television for many years, but Bloomberg itself is actually a technology company and it is probably the most widely used technology platform in the financial industry. So the technology platform's there and they've also got a content division. So news is what everyone is familiar with who's not in the industry, because if you're in the industry, you're typically using the Bloomberg terminal for your analysis, whether you're in equities, whether you're in a bond trader, whether you're in commodities, it's multi-asset in nature. And now it's also crypto, which is great. But there's also a research arm called Bloomberg Intelligence. So that team is now 300 person strong. So it's sort of started about 10 years ago with some equity analysts and it's sort of broadened out into this multi-asset, multi-thematic type research arm. So comparatively, like if we were a bank, which we're not, so we don't write sell-side research, but if we were, we would probably be in the top five in terms of research houses. And so my job is I was brought in to really cover the crypto market. So we had you know, coverage from certain parts of the Bloomberg Intelligence team, but no one was really dedicated on looking at, at the crypto asset space. So a lot of people were looking at blockchain companies, looking at Bitcoin really from a sort of macro standpoint. So there was a gap there that needed to be filled because clients were definitely asking more about crypto. In fact, they were demanding it. And I was very much involved in the technology side and also as an equity type specialist, so very much on TradFi. And yeah, I was brought over to basically look at this market, look at these assets and try and provide this detailed content that would allow our TradFi clients to understand the assets better. Because one of the biggest problems they face, if you look at all the surveys that get done in the industry, Usually top three, it's like, number one, it's data. Number two, it's like, how do you actually model these assets? So that's what I'm doing in my day-to-day. I write content for our clients that goes up on the Bloomberg terminal. And I also try to make that content as freely available through social media platforms as well. And it's something that I think for those more traditional investors, it's something for anybody to get your head around this concept is so 
hard. Like, you know, people can understand the technology and the foundations of it, but to really understand what's happening and the potential here is something that everyone has struggled with. You know, we're all learning at the same time. This is new for absolutely everyone. And it's something that I have really, you know, been interested in your approach to joining that gap and that bridge to making this something that's easy to understand for someone who might be, you know, that little bit more adverse to this industry in the first place, which has been really cool. For you personally, when did your crypto journey start? When did you start being interested in this space? Uh, It started in 2013. So that was when I noticed a headline that was posted onto Zero Hedge. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Zero Hedge, but when I was in the market, when I was working at hedge funds and sell-side brokerages, which was really the early part of my career, Zero Hedge was, was an excellent source of market information, sort of very cynical in nature, but always sort of cutting edge in terms of identifying some of the big trends that were happening or illuminating parts of the market or different types of analysis that perhaps weren't mainstream. And at that time, they were starting to publish stories around Bitcoin. I kind of ignored it. I'm not a tech guy. I didn't really read into it or follow it. But in that same year, we had the European banking crisis really accelerate and Cyprus had its major issues where the banks, the financial center basically collapsed and depositors' funds were bailed in. And for those of you who don't know what bailed in, I would recommend that everyone go and look it up because there are certain regulations that have been built into all the Western governments to allow this to happen in the future. What happened was that these banks were insolvent and instead of paying back, selling their assets and restructuring, what they effectively did was they took a large portion of the depositors' funds. And at that time, Bitcoin was rallying quite, it was going through one of its very early bull markets. And I made that connection and started to think about actually the financial system. And of course, I was acutely aware of what had happened in the GFC, what was happening in Europe at that time. I had very serious concerns. I was looking for answers that really wasn't coming from traditional uh, mainstream economics, which is my background. And that's how I kind of fell into it. And stupidly, I didn't do anything about it for a couple of years. I kind of thought it's either going to zero or it's going much higher. And I probably should have made that wager with the correct position sizing. But it wasn't until sort of 2015, 16 that I started to get a lot more interested in it because I was watching it all that time. And I could see that it had just had a 90% drawdown, but was actually starting to bottom out and starting to rise. And I always, you know, from my market experience, you know, things that fall 90% usually never come back. And this was uh, starting to look quite firm again in 15 and 16. And that's when I sort of really got involved. And, you know, I started trading it and I was based in Singapore at the time. So I was also exposed to a lot of the very early crypto businesses in the area. And so that kind of kicked things off and it accelerated after sort of 16, 17 into the later years where I became pretty much all in. I love that. And I think, you know, that that's one of the most interesting, I guess, interpretations of, of that time that I've heard so far as well is really looking at that from that financial and that macro perspective. There's a movie, I cannot for the life of me think of the name of it, and it unpacks, you know, what was happening with the banks at that time and just how bad that got as well. And I think it's really interesting to overlay that with, you know, the reason that Bitcoin was created in the first place and in cryptocurrency in general. And again, it's so interesting that that's kind of what piqued your interest in here. How have you found the transition from traditional finance to the world of crypto? 
Uh, well, I mean, I'm kind of bridging both at the moment. So I'm working for a TradFi company that's starting to provide the bridge to TradFi into crypto. So for me, it's been, it's been fairly smooth because I'm working within a very traditional organization, but I'm providing crypto market insights. So from that perspective, it's been really fine. I mean, I guess the fact that I was mentally all in by those sort of 2017, 2018 period, whilst I was working inside Bloomberg, also gave me, I guess, the motivation to start actively lobbying within my company to start doing more in this space. And that really fell on deaf ears for a couple of years. And I had to change my strategy. I ended up writing a report and I sent it to all the top managers on the sales side of the organization who are really the they're the really the, the decision makers, but also the product managers as well. And I outlaid all the things that I saw, what was happening in the industry. And that kind of kick-started a conversation which led to a big pivot. I'm not saying that I was the reason, but it was sort of at the time where the company decided that there was going to be a pivot. So it's kind of been interesting, like that transition. In terms of like how I think about these assets, that's been challenging, but that's been so much fun. And that's the reason why I wanted to get into the research arm, because I could see there was a gap in the market for high quality, very technical research that would appeal to the TradFi community in a way that I think could help them overcome some of the challenges that they were facing, uh, either with understanding the asset or understanding the potential, and then taking it to their decision makers in their firm and being able to position it. And, you know, that that's happening across the board. Like there's a lot of really good quality research that's starting to break out in the space and, you know, move away from where it was like three or four years ago, which was very price-based research, technical analysis mm. research, which I'm a massive proponent of. I'm a, I'm a CMT. I'm on the global board of the Chartered Market Technicians Association. I live and breathe. Technical analysis, price action is fantastic. However, in order to get those institutional clients into the space, there needed to be a more fundamental bottom-up approach that would bring them along. So that's kind of been the journey with that transition. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the resistance that you faced with that. And I, I'm sure that report was so comprehensive. What do you think is like the light bulb moment? What makes it twig for them that this is something that maybe they should be opening their eyes to, even looking back at that time? Well, okay, so you've got to think of people in different cohorts. They're those that are more open and susceptible to new ideas. So they were a very small portion of the overall group think that was happening in the organization. And this is not a criticism. It's just the way big institutions, established institutions with very strong businesses tend to think. The thing that really changes a institution's mind or a business's you know, viewpoint is when clients are screaming at them, telling them they need it. So that was kind of like they were hearing it from me, they were hearing it from a few other quarters, but in 2020, everything changed. We had the central banks respond to the pandemic with insane amounts of uh, money printing and credit stimuli from the government, and hedge funds started piling in. So that was kind of like that watershed moment. And, you know, I, I used to work at a, a global macro fund called Tudor, Paul Tudor Jones. He's been around a long time. He's one of the greats. He comes out and says, you know, this is going to unleash, you know, inflation. Bitcoin is the fastest horse in the race, meaning better than other assets, better than gold. Stanley Druckenmiller comes out, another great 
and says, look, I, this is part of my portfolio. I'm allocating it to it. And that kind of just set the wheels in motion. And then progressively over the rest of 2020 and 2021 in that bull market, we had insurance companies, we had pensions, we had uh, sovereigns even start to invest maybe not directly in the crypto assets, but in the businesses that were servicing them. And that's really another bridge for these institutions to take. It's maybe not a direct approach, but that's the way they tend to operate. They can buy an equity that has exposure to crypto, then they would do that because it doesn't require as much due diligence or compliance work. Yeah, or explanation, I guess, as well, yeah. and justification to those that, that maybe aren't coming on the journey. With that that institutional activity, we are still seeing, you know, quite a bit of this. What have you seen from your side? Like, what's your analysis of kind of what's going on right now in the market? Yeah, well, I mean, it's happening. It's happening underneath the surface. So that period of 2020 to 2021 was a watershed moment, explosion of activity. But it was still relatively small. And overall, like we have to be completely honest that it's a very small part of the institutional investment community and the corporates that are investing directly into crypto assets and blockchain right now. But it's growing very, very fast. You know, it actually really started in 2018. Some of the large US endowment funds, the university endowments, Harvard, Yale, they started investing and they have excellent track records because they manage money for their universities and they use these very strategic asset allocation type models. So they invest in basically everything that, you know, that's within the asset sort of spectrum. And they included Bitcoin in that initially. Then 2020, we had the hedge fund, the faster money, the guys that really have the ability to move a lot faster, they started investing in. And then you had insurance companies by the end of 2020 and early 2021 also start taking positions. You had announcements from pension funds. There's been talk in Australia that some of the pension funds would like to get into it. They haven't done anything as far as I'm aware, but you know what you're seeing across the board is everyone's exploring it internally. The problem that, you know, we've had a slowdown in that interest this year because, you know, we've had things that are external to crypto itself or forces that crypto is subject to, which is part of my valuation model, which is really what we're talking about here is the macro environment. But also, you know, crypto did a fantastic job in giving itself a black eye in the way that, you know, we had a protocol failure in Luna and also the centralized lenders. And, you know, the thing about that, because it always comes up in conversations as, you know, a very negative sort of criticism of the industry. But realistically, you know, what happened was that the centralized lenders behaved like wildcat banks or the unregulated or perhaps even deployed a lot of the silly techniques and processes that got us into trouble in the 2008, Mm. 2009. The underlying blockchains, the really decentralized ones, they operated smoothly. Nothing happened. Nothing changed. The protocols went on. The validation of the network happened. The coins were mined. But everything around it is affected by, you know, I guess what they do. You know, I think um, that has sort of slowed things down. But there is undeniable adoption and growth that's happening in the industry. And I'm definitely hearing that large pension funds, again, in US and in Europe, allocating to the space, they're allocating to crypto assets, but they're also allocating to the companies uh, which they think will benefit from the evolution of Web3, DeFi, and so forth. 
Yeah, there's a really interesting infographic that's been circulating at the moment in terms of like who's actually been investing in the Web3 space, which has been really cool to see. And I think like touching back on that, that whole concept of the lunar crash and everything that happened there with your experience, do you think like we were already seeing a slowdown then without a crystal ball? Do you think we would have seen, you know, a faster bounce perhaps without those events? I actually don't think so. I mean, what happened with lunar accelerated things and maybe caused the kinds of capitulation that we saw in June happen sooner in the cycle, in the bear cycle. But ultimately, if you map the macro environment to the crypto asset class, they are so intertwined. And it's clear that this macro environment that we're in, which is tightening, is not over. And if you also think about Bitcoin cycles or crypto cycles in the past, 85% 85% or 80 to 85% drawdowns in Bitcoin are the norm. And we got to a 70% drawdown in June, and then we've had a bounce off those lows. So my view going into this cycle, you know, when I became on to be a research analyst, I mean, I was, my first note was basically the first half of the year is going to be disastrous because of the tightening that was going to happen. And we that pretty much played out, but I didn't think it would get to a previous cycle low of 80 to 85%. But we are experiencing sharper tightening or more aggressive tightening than we have in the previous cycles. So you've got these two countervailing forces. You've got adoption happening. More people are coming onto the network. They're owning Bitcoin. They're owning Ethereum because they see the value in it being a potentially deflationary asset. So it's becoming seen as more of a store of value. So you've got that happening, but you've got the overarching macro environment, which is pushing against it. And I don't think you can ignore the the macro environment, but what we're hoping is that the adoption gets to a point where it starts to allow the asset class to start to deviate or diverge from the macro forces, which we're currently seeing. Um, So no, I don't think it would have saved Bitcoin from being down 70% in my view, but it certainly caused the acceleration of the downside move in March and April. Yeah. And I think that's, again, like really interesting because as we touched on at the start, like, you know, this was meant to be a countermeasure to inflation. And so just seeing the attachment to the macro environment at the moment has been something that I think for, for me personally as well, like outside looking in, just trying to make sense of that and why it's happening and what we're seeing. Yeah. This is one thing that has really come up this year because it's been highlighted because of the tightening that we've seen is, isn't Bitcoin an inflation hedge? So when I started looking at the asset years ago, I just saw the distinction between inflation from a monetary standpoint and goods and services inflation that we measured through CPI. The problem with Bitcoin being a CPI or a traditional inflation hedge is that when you have that, when you have high goods and services inflation, central banks will tighten. If you look at the way that the central bank expands and contracts the money supply, that really overlays with Bitcoin cycles. So actually, it's when we've essentially had some sort of downturn that you get the expansion of the monetary supply. So monetary inflation versus goods and services inflation. That sets off the cycle in Bitcoin, typically. And then as the monetary inflation starts to work its way through the economy, or if government spending starts to increase, which is what we saw in 2020, for the first time in a decade, we started to see actual price inflation. And when price inflation happens, that's when central banks start to take away the stimulus or take away the surplus. 
and we go into a bear market. So I think the evolution of the asset and the understanding from the market is that, okay, we need to make a distinction between price inflation and monetary inflation. And Satoshi was always, you know, he saw in his right paper, he mentioned, I'm not going to quote him, but like paraphrasing, it was, you know, the debasement of the currency that we need in something that's has a fixed supply schedule that is the antithesis of an ever-expanding monetary supply. But even in an ever-expanding monetary supply world that we live in, there are periods when they tighten, and that is bad news for crypto typically, at least for now. The relationship may change in the future, but it's just been that way. So following those cycles can really help people avoid some of the pitfalls of timing to get into the, the sector. Yeah, definitely. And I think because, you know, uh, there's not that much coverage of this, right? Like you are doing some phenomenal work in this space. But if we look at the amount of media coverage and, and the things that we're hearing as a general consensus, there's nothing about this. Like, you know, they, they hedge on and talk about inflation as a whole. There's not a lot of information that will actually break this down and explain it and those sort of things. And again, Jamie, that's why we were so excited to have you on to hear this sort of stuff and help people to understand that there are other layers to this that they need to know as well. Yeah, I, I don't know why they don't talk about it. I mean, you know, it's just one of those curiosities of the media. But um, does it make a good uh, clickbait headline? Yeah, exactly. I think everyone has to find their their new sources very carefully, and something that goes a little bit more below the surface is obviously going to educate, but also illuminate you know, potential opportunities. Yeah. And touching on, you know, where to get their information. I know that so many people listening to this will just be itching for me to ask you how you value assets. Like, you know, you live and breathe this, you're in it all day, every day. What sort of things do you pay attention to? Yeah. So like, I mean, um, the way I sort of think about it is these blockchains are essentially networks. And in traditional finance, there's been the concept of network value that's been applied or like a theory or a modeling approach that's been applied to businesses that are networks. And a great example of this would be like the mobile phone companies of the 1990s or the social media companies of the 2000s. So there's a principle that, you know, I quote quite a bit in my research, Metcalfe's Law, where the value of the asset is proportional to the number of users. And like in the first principles sort of way that makes total sense. So the question that I wanted to answer for clients is, is there a fundamental basis for owning these assets or are there, is there a fundamental way to value these assets? Uh, and fundamentals in the equity world is things like, you know, if you're a portfolio manager, you're asking, what, what is your approach about? You know, the majority, 80, 90%, maybe even higher, will say, I'm a fundamentals-based investor. Okay, so what does that mean? I look at the cash flows of the business. I look at the sales, I look at the type of business it is, and I work out you know, how much money it's going to make in the next quarter or the next year or the next five years. And then I look at you know, what sort of fair value I can derive from that. And then I compare it to every other asset in the market and I can say, okay, this has got a more upside or less upside than these other investment opportunities. So what are the fundamentals for crypto? Now, back in about 2017, 18, the first signs of on-chain data started to appear. So on-chain data is just data that's been extracted off the blockchain. So if you run a node on Bitcoin, you can get data. And then if you have the sort of data science capabilities, you can actually create metrics from that. And so from a first principles standpoint, like if it's a network and Metcalfe's law that applies to so successfully to mobile companies and to internet companies, 
what does that mean for a blockchain or a blockchain asset like Bitcoin or Ethereum or Solana or any of these other uh, networks? So at the end of the day, the number of users using it, the number of transactions, these are things that drive value. So Bitcoin was always meant to be a peer-to-peer monetary network and infrastructure, which had an asset which had properties of money or better money than fiat. So simply put, like if you're tracking the number of wallets or addresses, you know, how many active people are on the network using it, and what is the size or the value that's actually being transferred from network from participant to participant, you know, these must have some correlation to the value, to the price. And what I've found with modeling these assets is yes, they do. You know, they vary and they don't explain the entire story, which is why macro and technical analysis is really complementary. But at the end of the day, if the network is growing, if in the case of Bitcoin, more people are owning Bitcoin and they're just holding it, they're hodling, then that's actually going to drive price. If there are more people using it, instead of transferring 100 million uh, US dollars in value in a year, they're actually transferring a trillion, then the value of the network should increase. So that's kind of like how I've distilled the fundamental view. And I have a dashboard which has got, for Bitcoin, about 30 to 35 different metrics. And for Ethereum, about 45 because it's more complex. It does more things. It's a smart contract platform. And if you break all of these down, you can sort of see where the, the change on the network is or the, um, the rate of change of adoption is increasing or decreasing. And that sort of feeds into the fundamental basis for saying, okay, this asset is doing well or it's undervalued or overvalued. And then you overlay the macro, which really runs the ship from, you know, at the margin and then technical analysis, which I'm a huge proponent of. And it just helps basically help the timing of the asset and also understanding where the risk reward opportunities are. So, you know, deep oversold levels combined with strong fundamentals and an improving macro environment is like the sweet spot for, you know, entry and vice versa for perhaps when you want to sort of cut or, um, you know, reduce your position if you're a trader or if you're like most people, it's just like, who cares? Like in 10 years time, there's going to be 10 times the amount of fiat that's going to be pumped into the system because the central banks, that's the only game in town for them ultimately. So who cares? Uh, just as long as there's more people joining the network. So that's kind of how I think about it. That is phenomenal. And I think we've just done an episode on day trading and, you know, the different strategies that you can implement. And in that, we touched on how complex this is. And I think your explanation there, Jamie, it just highlights like, you know, if you want to be successful, there is so much that goes into this. At the moment, at the time that we're recording, it's a very interesting time. We've got the Ethereum merge that's going to kick off at the start of next week. Hopefully, touch wood, we'll see if we actually finally commit to this day. But once this episode comes out, hopefully it will have started and everything will be on its way. So, Jamie, applying those, I guess, views to this, what do you think we're going to see with Ethereum over the next few weeks and months? Well, I think everyone who's, you know, who's rooting for Ethereum just hopes that it goes through successfully and there's no bugs or issues that come up or surface during the transition phase. So, you know, that is still a non-zero risk, despite, I think, what it looks to be a great effort by the developers to ensure that this does go smoothly. You know, there's always an outside chance that that does actually take place, but I think it's relatively small based on my understanding of following the developer calls and what they've been posting. 
Uh, in terms of like what happens, like I think, you know, most people are sort of familiar with now the story, the narrative around Ethereum moving to proof of stake and what that means for the reduction in daily supply. There's no miners. So the issuance on a daily basis actually drops by about 85% or 90%. So that means that the sell side pressure or the supply pressure is dramatically reduced. And so if you think about it, if you dollarize like where Ethereum is trading right now and how much Ethereum the miners typically sell, this should remove around $7 billion a year from selling pressure because miners will, you know, predominantly sell the currency that they're mining in order to cover their costs. And sometimes they hold a little bit. Sometimes they take a view not to sell some of it for a longer period of time, but, you know, they're selling most of it. So that is just ether that hits the market every single day from the miners. So that dynamic completely changes. So that's actually something which puts Ethereum in a very competitive position relative to other crypto assets because that pressure is being relieved or is being dramatically reduced. So, you know, a lot of these other networks have issuance or emission schedules anywhere between 5 to 15% per year. Ethereum at the moment as proof of work is around 4 So they immediately have an advantage in terms of that selling pressure for the asset. So I think that makes the equation tilted towards Ethereum, you know, very, very positively going forward. There's also the, you know, what's happening with the staking itself. So more Ether is being locked up into staking contracts to validate the network, secure the network, and then also enjoy the rewards. And that just means more Ether is, is being removed from the market. So that's a, another, you know, supply side change, which is positive. Um, so all of these, the dynamics of the proof of stake situated transition is very positive for Ethereum, especially relative to the rest of the space. The issue I still find is that we need an activity return. We need a re- recovery and general activity on the network to really push us into a new cycle. My view is actually given where where gas is and given where fees are like the amount of fees that are being you know paid on the network we're at really the bottom of the cycle so in terms of timing this looks very attractive uh however will we move up tomorrow without a recovery in activity those same things that i mentioned earlier like going back to first principles more users more transactions unless we see that actually you know we may see it sort of you know, go along the the sort of bottoming range for a little while yet. So that's kind of thing that I'm looking for. Now, if we see just a recovery, I did some analysis about two weeks ago, where if the trend in gas prices was just to recover back to its 100-day average, which would be about a tripling, if I remember correctly, a tripling of the gas. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's actually less than that. Let's say it's anywhere between sort of a doubling or a tripling. Then Ethereum would actually move from being slightly inflationary which is probably what we'll see straight after the merge, to about 50 basis points deflationary. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of burning. And that's a lot of, that's actually, when it, when we go deflationary, it's no longer like a supply side reduction. It is a demand increase in that the in supply schedule will be purchasing of Ether because of the burn mechanism. So that is actually really encouraging. But we need to see fees. We need to see activity start to bottom and start to increase. And we're just not seeing that right now. So that's kind of like my sort of view on Ethereum 
relatively better than the other layer ones position in mm. terms of upside. Number two, like in the cycle, we're at the sort of bottom end of a cycle, usually a four-year cycle. And number three, we do not have the activity just yet to say we're in a new bull market for crypto. And of course, we've got the macro story, which is still pressuring of these assets. But look for an alignment and all those things, and then you've got perhaps a new cycle that's going to start. Yeah, it's something very exciting to watch this space and see what happens. And guys, if you haven't listened to the episode that we do have on the ETH merge, we do kind of unpack, you know, what deflationary could look like, what sharding is and how that could play into this and all of the other elements that are coming along with this. So um, if you want to dive really deep into that, definitely go back to that episode as well as the stuff that Jamie's just said now, because it really does paint this incredible story that you're like, oh, I thought, you know, naturally you think that something's going to happen, but when you start unpacking it and unraveling, and I guess, you know, looking under the hood, there's so much more going on at the moment, which you just really need to pay attention to. And and that helps you to, again, make good trading decisions. Well, Jamie, it's been so incredible having you on and hearing about the work that you're doing and all of your insights. Is there anything else that you'd like to leave Ellis's with? One thing I would say is that, you know, I'm not, not necessarily telling clients what to buy or sell, but make sure that you size your positions relative to your risk appetite. Because if there's anything about crypto, as we know, it's extremely volatile and it's very easy to become unstuck. So you've got to work out what is that percentage allocation that will allow you to sleep at night. And uh, I think that's the biggest thing because I saw, you know, too many people get wiped out and liquidated during the sort of Q2 sell-off that we saw. Very sound advice. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for joining us today. If someone wants to follow along and read about all the things that you're posting, where can they go? I'm on Twitter mainly. Uh, so at Jamie1Coots. And I, you know, I regularly post to uh, LinkedIn as well. So you can find my stuff there. And if you're interested in any of my research and you want to be on the distribution list, I'm happy to add you. So my email address is jcoots10 at bloomberg.net. Amazing. We'll pop it all in the show notes for you guys and definitely highly recommend jumping on and having a look at some of Jamie's research because it is just so insightful and a a whole different level to the stuff that I've seen before. So thank you so much again, Jamie, for joining us and we will talk to you soon. Thanks, Alicia. It was a great chat. Thank you so much for joining us for today's show. If you liked it, don't forget to head over to the gram and join us at Tapping Into Crypto. And before we finish up, just a general disclaimer that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. And the opinions on this podcast belong to individuals and are not affiliated with any companies mentioned. Any advice is general in nature and does not take into account your own personal situation. If you're looking to get advice, please seek out the help of a licensed financial advisor. We'll talk to you soon. 